Father, we do pray today You would be glorified in us as we study Your Word, as we study the truth of Your Son. And Lord, as Your Spirit moves in us for sanctification, and Lord, prayerfully, for those who are not believing today, for salvation, we ask that Your Word would come alive in us. Lord, we pray that we would make every attempt to know You, to trust You, to believe You, to live our lives for Your glory today. Lord, we make that effort knowing that it must be You in us, both for the willing and working of Your good pleasure. So we ask that You would do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what a magnificent, beautiful day to worship together. I have to tell you, in spite of the strangeness of the last year, which would have come upon the anniversary of the pandemic, uh, 2020, really beginning in 2020 for us as a church, has been really a very sweet, wonderful year for us, in spite of what's been happening. What's great about it is because of the pandemic, we had to cancel all these things, not do a bunch of things we had originally planned, really a lot uh, of things except for the most basic of ministry. So we can credit no one but God alone for the sweet time and the wonderful experience we've had over the last year. So we give Him all the glory. It is the praise of the glory of His grace that we exist and we find our joy. Well, soli deo gloria, God's glory alone, is that final foundation stone upon which the Protestant Reformation was built. Johann Sebastian Bach, perhaps the greatest composer and musician of all time, was born and lived in Eisenach, Germany, about a century and a half after Luther was there at the Wartburg, translating the Bible into German. And Bach was a strong believer. He was a strong Protestant. He looked to his Protestant reformer, forebears, and at the bottom of every manuscript of his composition, he affixed the letters SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to remind himself and all who would use and read his music that all of life, all the beauty of this world, and especially the story of the redemption of mankind is all to God's glory alone. We have looked at the first four of the five soli of the Reformation, and today we'll be looking at that final pillar upon which the Protestant Reformation stood. First, we studied sola fide, faith alone, meaning we are justified, we are declared right before God by faith alone, not by any ritual, not by any good deed, but only when we have genuine faith. This truth is found and built upon the testimony of Scripture, which the Reformers held was over the church, held authority over the church, over every Christian, over every leader in the church. And therefore, the Scripture stands as our final authority in the church and stands as the, the centerpiece of everything we are as Christians and everything a church is as the church of Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine of sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Now, Scripture teaches that because of this, because of the, the fallenness and depravity of man, salvation cannot come by our own merit, and we find in Scripture that salvation must be an act of God's grace, and therefore we studied sola gratia, grace alone. 
And of course, God gives us His grace through Christ alone, solus Christus. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And today we come to the final point, soli Deo Gloria, God's glory alone. Really, it's best to think of it as to God's glory alone. The whole of history, but especially the story of redemption, the whole of history and, and the story of salvation of mankind, even of individual souls, is all to magnify the glory of God. And so we as believers, we live our lives not to ourselves, not for our own pleasure, not to bring glory to our own abilities, to our own accomplishments, but for our own pride. We live our lives to God's glory alone. After the Reformation, various groups of Protestants began to write down their core beliefs in confessions and creeds, and oftentimes those creeds would be taught particularly to children, through a series of questions and answers with references that they had to memorize. These are called catechisms. To, to catechize your ch children is to teach them these questions that go along with all that you believe with the Scripture references. The most famous of all these catechisms is the Westminster Catechism, based upon the Westminster Confession, of course. Question number one is, what is the chief and highest end of man? Answer. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. The Baptist Catechism, based upon the London Baptist Confession, which is probably the second most famous of all creeds, the Baptist Catechism, written by Benjamin Keach, said the exact same thing. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, that's my goal today, not only to glorify God in myself and what I'm doing up here, but to do it by convincing you that your purpose, your best life is, is not in pursuing your, your purpose or your own desires or your own meaning, but in pursuing God's glory alone in everything. God created us to worship Him, to give Him glory, to magnify His attributes, not our own, to magnify His redeeming love not our own. And any discontentment or inner turmoil or lack of joy or lack of peace, it all comes down to our failure to glorify God and to enjoy God. So my objective today is to convince you, to awaken in you a desire to glorify God in everything, to wake up every morning with that driving objective in your heart, I will glorify God. I'll magnify God. All right, well, it's with this in mind. Let me read today's passage. Romans chapter 11, if you'll turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, and we'll get to studying this final point, and I want to illustrate it as I have been with some illustrations out of the Protestant Reformation, defining who we are as Protestants Romans chapter 11, I'm going to read verse 30 down to verse 36. Let's follow along as I read aloud. Romans 11, beginning of verse 30, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, 
but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. As the Reformation spread across Europe and beyond, the Protestants adopted a, a phrase, a phrase that uh, not only described uh, a transition from the dark ages into a, a time of uh, out of superstition and darkness into a time of, of revelation and the, the bright light of Scripture being opened, but it was a phrase that described people's individual experience of salvation. That phrase is post-tenebrous lux, after darkness, light. And what a great description of history, but not just history, but of the individual experience of salvation, a spiritual awakening that swept across Europe, but also a spiritual awakening, awakening in our own hearts, post-tenebrous lux. Story after story were, would be emerging of people, individuals being freed from the slavery of sin, the slavery of a graceless religion of merit to these wonderful Reformation truths, truths of God's grace, free and pure, all for God's glory. And before the Reformation, there was a, a general belief that unless you're doing something at the church, on the church premises, some sort of ritual or at least some sort of religious act or some sort of act of service on the church premises, you, you really weren't doing anything in terms of the kingdom. You really weren't glorifying God at all. You had to come to the actual church facility to actually glorify God. It was secular. Everything you did on the outside of the church was secular. The only thing sacred you could do, the only thing that you could do to glorify God was to come to the church and actually do things. But the Reformers discovered, or rediscovered rather, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do for the glory of God. Everything, your work, your raising of children, your toiling in the field, your toiling in the factory, your fighting in an army or leading an army, all of it can be done for the glory of God. You can enjoy God and glorify God in the most mundane task of life. You can do it at this very moment. You can even suffer and glorify God. You can even go through hardship and glorify God through it all. One of the stories, it may be a little bit apocryphal, but one of the stories is that of a cobbler, that's a shoemaker or a shoe repairer, coming up to Luther, and he was very concerned about giving glory to God. He was, he was worried that as a cobbler, he, he really wasn't able to give glory to God. And so he, he professed to Luther, he said, you know, I... I I want to become a pastor, but not because I want to be a pastor, not because I feel called to be a pastor, but because I, I just feel like I can't give glory to God uh, as a shoemaker, and, and I just don't know anything else to do. Should I become a pastor, or what should I do as a shoemaker? And again, a little bit apocryphal. We don't know if Luther really said this, but Luther is said to have said to him or replied to him, 
build a better shoe. His point is you can glorify God by just being good at what you do. Do all that you do. Are you a slave? Are you a master? Are you someone who works as a business owner? Just do it all to glory, glorify God. Probably the most uh, happy, one of the most happy things that happened during the time of the Reformation all across Europe was a sudden abundance of marriages. As you know, the Catholic Church holds unbiblically that men of the cloth cannot marry. They are to be celibate. Following that tradition, monks and nuns also are sworn to celibacy and barred from marriages as well. So, at that time, as all these monks and nuns were getting saved and coming out of the Catholic Church, suddenly you had tens of thousands of monks and nuns who were suddenly eligible bachelors and bachelorettes. You can imagine all of a sudden there was this sweeping movement of people getting married one after the other after the other. Salvation awoken in their hearts the the beauty and the glory and the freedom and the joy of salvation, and marriage just swept across the land. In fact, Martin Luther, though he was not married at the time, he became sort of a matchmaker, and he would pair people off. It sort of reminds me uh, when I went down to uh, Fiji for the first time and, uh, and met, or uh, maybe it was the second or third time I went to Fiji, but at some point early in my trips down to Fiji, I, I met this uh, uh, president of a seminary down there, the seminary that we support, Pramin Choi, his, his leader, the guy who went before him, uh, uh, Dr. Narayan Nair, and I was told that he would do this very thing. He would, he would call a meeting with some young seminary student, and he would call a meeting from some, with some young lady from his church, and they would come in the meeting. He said, now you two are supposed to marry. And they usually would just go do it. I, I imagine this is what Luther was doing. He was just getting people in his office and saying, now you're supposed to marry him, and he's supposed to marry you. You guys get married and have children. And they would say, okay, all these marriages kept on happening. Well, the story goes like this. Luther... Uh, would also not just marry people, rescue people out of the cat. There's a lot of persecution still going. A lot of people being killed. Luther's, a number of Luther's friends were killed. And so Luther was, was sort of running this underground railroad and getting people out of the, the Catholic areas and into sort of Protestant villages where they would be more protected. And he was contacted by a, a group of nuns in a convent not far from him. Twelve nuns contacted him and said, we've all come to saving knowledge of Christ. And, and we want out of this convent, but we, we've been told that we could be killed if we try to escape. And Luther arranged for a friend of his, a, a fishmonger, to go to the convent under the auspices of dropping off and picking up some fish. And he went to this place, and he took these nuns and hid them in 12 barrels of herring. And he took his wagon, and the took these nuns back to Wittenberg, and these ladies arrived in Wittenberg, rather smelly, I assume, and they got out of the barrels, and very quickly, Luther began to pair them off with men there in Wittenberg, many of them former priests, former monks. One after the other, they began to get married, and all the way to the point, it left to just one left, a lady by the name of Katie von Bora, and he couldn't find a suitable man for her. In fact, I think he tried several times, and there was just nothing could work out, and this, this lady was a, a daughter of an aristocrat, and so uh, some men were sort of a little more afraid of her and didn't know what to do and couldn't handle it, and people began to suggest, Luther, you ought to marry Katie von Bohr. In fact, Luther's father, who had gotten saved by this time and had moved up there and was supportive of Luther, said, yeah, you need to marry. I want some grandkids. Marry this young lady. 
Now, Luther said no. He said, I don't want to marry because I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be captured and executed at some point, and I don't want to leave behind a, a widow and a bunch of children. It just, I don't want to do that to anybody. And so he just resisted and resisted and resisted. But Luther's father, Hans, and some of his Luther's friends there prevailed upon him, not with, not with the idea of love, but with logic. Luther did not fall in love with Katie von Bora. He fell in love, he fell in logic with Katie von Bora. He said, there are three reasons why I'm going to marry Katie von Bora. He says, one, I'm going to seal my position as a Protestant. Protestants marry, and therefore I will marry. He said, second, I want to do this to spite the Pope and the devil. I want to get married to this woman, not because I love her, not because I think she's beautiful, because I want to spite the Pope. And then third, he said, uh, I want to marry to please my father. So Martin Luther and Katie von Bora married, 1525, and it probably surprised Luther more than it surprised anyone else that right after their marriage, he fell head over heels for her. He fell deeply in love with Katie. Their home became known far and wide as a place of great laughter and love. Katie and Martin had six children, what we call an overachiever. Luther, like some of you young fathers, prided himself how fast he could change a diaper. He would tell jokes, he would sing songs, he would write songs. By all accounts, this family was glorifying God and enjoying Him. The glory of God has so many aspects, and the glory of God, the, the truth of God's glory can be realized in so many aspects of our life. All the beauty and the radiance of God can shine forth like, like facets of a diamond. And the more you live your life for the glory of God, the more you realize there's, there's all kinds of ways that you can bring glory to the God that you love, whether it be in marriage or childbearing or work or the church. And, of course, the most glorious thing, the, most great, the greatest way that you can glorify God is by responding to the gospel, by, by repenting and having faith in Jesus Christ and living your life for God's glory. Well, let's look at our text. Here in Romans 11, Paul has been explaining that God has this sovereign plan according to the Jews. This, this question would come up, and, and if you can remember a number of years ago, we studied the book of Romans, and, and what we learned about the book of Romans, there was a little bit of struggle between Jew and Gentile Christians and how to handle this, this difference, and, and, and Paul had to address this. The, the Jews at the church of Rome had left. They had been expelled from Rome, and they had just recently come back, and so there were all these questions surrounding Jews and Judaism and what God's plan was for the Jews. And so, in chapters 9 to 11, Paul is addressing this idea of God's plan for the Jewish people. And Paul is explaining that it is because of Jewish widespread disobedience that the gospel was spread among the nations. The Jews, by and large, not all of them, but by and large, the Jews rejected Christ, they rejected the gospel, they put Him on a cross, and because of this activity, the gospel began to be spread, and God turned to the nations, the Jews were essentially rejected, again, not that every Jew was rejected by God, and many Jews were saved in that time, but, but by and large, the Jews rejected, God rejected them, and the gospel went to the nations. Because of their sin, in other words... The gospel went to the Gentiles. And Paul is explaining, you kind of heard it in those early verses, Paul is explaining just as their disobedience 
led to your salvation, they're going to look upon this great salvation and the fact that you were saved out of disobedience into salvation. One day, the Jews will look upon that salvation and essentially be jealous in a spiritual way, and they're going to want to follow Christ themselves. And so the gospel will reach, in the end, by God's sovereign hand, by God's sovereign plan, it'll reach both the Gentiles and the Jews. This is God's magnificent, sovereign plan. And as Paul begins to explain this and, and get this to the people, and, and coming to sort of the end of his explanation there at the end of chapter 11, Paul just sort of erupts in praise to God. He's just thinking about this great plan, thinking about the salvation, going to not just Gentiles, but his people. He mourned for his people. He longed for his people to be saved. And knowing that the gospel would eventually come to them and they would respond just causes Paul to erupt in praise of glory for God. So I think this gives us a pretty good idea of how we and why we should glorify God. Well, if you're taking notes, maybe you want to write this down. A, or number one, glorify God for His sovereignty. That's sort of the first thing that He touches on. God is not victimized by human actions. God is not up in heaven at this great plan that's being constantly thwarted by stupid people. God is on His throne. Everything that is happening is according to plan even the rejection of God's people, the Jews. This is not something that took God by surprise. This is not something that God didn't expect, and He, he fully expected the, the Jews to celebrate the coming Messiah. And, and how disappointed was God when, when they rejected Him? No, this was all part of His plan. In fact, His plan was that they would reject Him so that it would put Christ on the cross. It was all part of His sovereign plan. And his sovereign plan would carry out as the gospel went to the Gentiles, and eventually the Jews, by and large again, would return to the God, the Yahweh, whom they originally served. God is not victimized by sin. God is not victimized by poor decisions, by natural disasters, by unspiritual people who reject him. God is not victimized by the Jewish rejection of his son. No, their rejection was ordained by him as a part of his eternal plan. We don't need to rescue God from His sovereignty. He gave them over to their own desires. He hardened their hearts. Again, this is in perfect concert with their personal desires. It doesn't diminish, though, the fact that God was acting sovereignly. Look there at verse 30. For just as you, speaking to the Gentile Roman Christians there, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience... So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. In other words, by the mercy that God demonstrates upon you Gentiles, the Jews will see this and they will receive His mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all, all being both Jews and Gentiles. He's going to demonstrate mercy and grace and salvation among both groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And and in His sovereign plan, even though it does not accord with His moral will in terms of doing right and wrong, even though His sovereign will is different from that, His sovereign will has decreed that there would be disobedience, that there would be sin, that there would be hardship for an era so that He could display His mercy and grace. It's all part of God's magnificent plan. And this is a message that Paul has been giving the Romans from the very beginning. 
that God has this massive plan, that God is sovereign over all of this, that God is building His church together, which one day will include many, many Jewish people, though they live in rejection in this era. In Romans chapter 1, we learn about God's sovereign plan, calling the saints to salvation. In Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul asks, does the unfaithfulness of the Jews, does this somehow mess up God's plan? Does it nullify the promise of God? Not at all, Paul says. This is all according to God's sovereign plan. You see God's sovereignty in chapter 4. God chose Abraham, and the result of God's choice of Abraham is that Abraham had faith in God. In chapter 5, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, Christ didn't die for people who were making good spiritual decisions. Christ didn't die for people who were just a little bit better than everyone else. Christ died for the ungodly. Chapter 6, you who were once slaves are now set free. Why? Because of the sovereign grace of God. Chapter 7, even though we deal with the residue of sin in this life, Paul praises God, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He doesn't say, thanks be to God, I was just, you know, at the right place in the right time and made the right choices. No, it's God from start to finish. Chapter 8 highlights, of course, the sovereignty of God, that famous verse, verse 29, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Romans chapter 9 Though they were not born, talking of Esau and Jacob, they were not born, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, because of Him who calls. She was told the older, older will serve the younger, younger. God's sovereignty. Romans chapter 9, verse 15, He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. In verse 18, so then He has mercy on whomever He wills. He hardens whomever He wills. Then we get to chapters 10 and 11, and we see that God's mercy and hardening are all according to His great purpose, particularly in respect to the Jews. It's not careless, it's not cavalier, it's not callous. God's sovereign plan is a plan of mercy and grace and kindness. And because of this glorious sovereignty, this plan that He is executing, God should be glorified. You can't wriggle free from the sovereignty of God. And let me tell you something. Listen very carefully. If you immerse yourself in the idea of the sovereignty of God, you'll be praising Him more. You'll be rejoicing in God all the more. You'll be taking less and less credit for the good things of your life, and particularly the salvation that God has given you. You'll take less and less credit of that, and you'll give Him more and more glory. Paul looks around. He sees all this depravity working in his countrymen, the Israelites at that time. He sees the experiences the persecution, the sickness, the flogging, the rejection at the hands of Jews toward Christians. He mourns the fact that they live in opposition to the God whom he serves, in opposition to Jesus, and yet he somehow understands this all to be a part of God's sovereign plan, and he erupts in worship of God's sovereignty. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable His ways. He glorifies God for His sovereignty, His sovereign plan that He's executing. Number two, glorify God for His mercy. You hear this all throughout this passage. Grace, of course, is receiving that which we did not deserve. 
God gives us faith. God gives us repentance. God gives us perseverance. God gives us joy. All of that is of grace. Mercy is a grace that God gives us, but mercy is God withholding from us the things that we do deserve. And you can see this grace of God, His mercy, in those verses there in the text. You now have received mercy. Verse 30. Verse 31. You are receiving mercy so that one day they, meaning the Jews, will receive mercy. Verse 33, all this hardening and disobedience, all this movement of history, all this sovereign plan of God is so that He can display His mercy on all. It's all about the display of God's mercy. Before you can understand mercy, obviously, you need to know where you stand without His mercy. You have to agree with God with what you deserve. You have to see that you have done nothing meritorious. You're exactly what Paul describes us as, sinful, lost in sin, dead in sin, self-righteous. You have to come to that point where you beat your chest and cry out, Lord, be merciful to me. We deserve death. We deserve eternal punishment. And we don't have the wherewithal to lift ourselves out of our condition. It is simply by the sheer mercy of God. In spite of our condition, though, God descends to us. He has mercy on us. Salvation is not of merit, it is of mercy. And this parallels and perfectly fits with God's sovereignty. It is not of Him who runs or wills, it is of God. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, we must reject any system of moral, meritorious works. Even those religions that that call themselves Christian religions, we must reject any system that says we're saved by merit, by religion by works, by rituals. Why? Because it is all of the mercy of God. And it's all of the mercy of God so that we would give God glory alone. Psalm 89, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Psalms also says His mercy is abundance. Luke says His mercies are tender. You see this all throughout the life of Jesus. The ones who are saved are are not the ones who pile up prayers and accomplish and tick all the religious boxes. It's the ones who cry out, have mercy on me. Those are the ones who are justified, Jesus says. The blind man, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. What you learn there is that when Jesus says, your faith has made you well, he's really saying your faith has sozo, saved you. You've looked to me and cried out for mercy. Don't look to your own works. You look to me. And guess what? When that's your attitude, the Bible says God is faithful to have mercy. When someone comes to God crying for mercy, all who come to Him in the name of Jesus will be saved. This is a cry for mercy. Lord, I cannot save myself. I cannot work my way to heaven. I need your Mercy, and when that bountiful mercy is unloaded on you, you in turn glorify Him. Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Psalm 28, verse 6. So we worship Him for His sovereignty. We worship Him for His mercy. What else? Glorify God for His supremacy. Glorify God for His supremacy. Now, when I first preached uh, here in Romans, I think the word I used is the word that you find there in verse 33, inscrutability. But if I ask you to raise your hand if you use the word inscrutable, uh, 
or inscrutability this week, I would imagine not one of us would raise our hand. But even supremacy is not that great. Transcendence, perhaps. His might, his mystery that he's far beyond us. This is the facet of God that Paul is worshiping there in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgment. How inscrutable His ways. We're worshiping His supremacy. His ways are higher than ours. We don't understand. We don't understand how how man must be responsible to repent, to, to believe, to have faith, and yet at the same time affirm the sovereignty of God and salvation. We don't understand how it all works. We don't understand his, his meticulous plan for the ages. It's all in the infinite supreme mind of God. Paul has just explained this, this massive sovereign plan of Jews and Gentiles, how he's going to save Gentiles and, and then the Jews and control all of history to do so. And you spend any amount of time reflecting on this, it's It's staggering. The complexity and detail and power that God must have to, to plan and implement this scheme to save all the people whom He desires to save. Our little finite brains can't handle it. It's amazing how He moves heaven and earth, literally, to accomplish His purposes. Even as we think about the sovereignty and the mercy of God, absolutely unfathomable. You think you're, you're sovereign over your home. You may think, well, I have you know, some level of authority and sovereign over your home. You control it all. You do? What about the bugs, the weeds, the mold? We're always surprised. We're always caught off guard when something goes wrong. You're not sovereign at all. And yet God controls trillions upon trillions of atoms in our own home for His glory. In just a small space, all under His supreme plan. That's His inscrutability, His supremacy. Psalm 92, verse 5, the psalmist says, His thoughts are very deep. Psalm 139, verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. In other words, my mind is too small. It is limited. I could never understand it. Now, to illustrate this, Paul gives us a few examples. The first is from Isaiah chapter 40. And the question that he repeats from Isaiah 40 there is, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who wants to raise their hand and say, I know the mind of God. I do. I understand all the purposes and the infinite mind of God. That's absurd. No one knows the infinite mind of God. Second, he, he quotes from Job 36, who has been his counselor? Anyone? Anyone standing at the right hand of God? You know, we think of kings and, and leaders and them being very talented and gifted, and, and yet even the most gifted and most talented of, of kings and leaders has a whole host of advisors and counselors there to help him make decisions and understand things. And yet God needs not one counselor. There's not one of us. No matter how smart we are, we can't stand as God and give him stand next to God and give him advice. It's absurd. Finally, Paul quotes again from Job, Job chapter 35 verse 7, also uh, 41:11, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. 
In other words, who's, who's given God something that he's sort of lacking? Who's lended to God that, that God would have to you sort of be in his debt? You know, that's the, that's the fundamental attitude of salvation by works, isn't it? I've done this, now you owe me. I went through the process. I did my rituals. I've done this. Surely, you'll let me in. God, in the mind of people who believe in salvation by work, God in their mind is basically their debtor. He owes them something. But God needs nothing from you. He has within Himself all that He has needed, all that He needs now, and all that He will ever need. Don't think you can help Him out. You can add to Him, add to His kingdom. He is unfathomably complete within Himself. He is totally supreme. Some of you know that I used to live out in the country, Makaha. I would walk out my front door or back door at night and just look up in the stars and you're around that bend, you're sort of away from all the city lights and just dumbfounded by, by the vastness of space, all those stars and planets, its beauty, its complexity, its size. The Bible says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of His mouth all their host. One word. One word, and it comes all into existence. One word, and every atom suddenly exists. Every atom, with its purpose, with its objective, with its place in the universe, was all in the mind of God, and with one word, it suddenly is just there. The supremacy of God, His transcendence. Well, all this leads us to the final attribute that I can see here that stimulates and produces our worship, us glorifying God. D, glorify God for His majesty. Look there at verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. By this point, Paul is absolutely overwhelmed with the splendor, the magnificence, the supremacy, the grandeur, the, the glory of God. He, he breaks out in song. All of this together may have been a part of an ancient Christian song, and he, he's overwhelmed and begins to sing this song. It's similar to the song that we heard earlier in the service, Steve from, read from Psalm chapter 8, the majesty and glory of His name. You know, in the end, the joyous discovery of the Reformation is that if we live our lives for the glory of God, the God of the Bible, every bit of our lives for his, is lived for His glory alone. We find our supreme contentment, our supreme joy, our supreme assurance, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter how hard, even as we face death, we can find the joy of God's glory. We can rejoice in glorifying God. In late 1545, Luther was asked to help a couple of brothers who were at odds with one another. They had a very severe uh, argument with one another. It was in a different city. Interestingly, it was in the city where Luther was born, Eisleben. And Luther was now old by 16th century standards. He had to travel back and forth several times between Wittenberg 
and Eisleben. Well, either in, in late 1545 or early 1546, one of his trips, he, he probably had some sort of heart attack after a little bit of an accident, some other coronary event maybe, and he ended up sick by the time he got to Eisleben. He ended up, ended up very sick in bed most of the time. In fact, uh, as things progressed, it just got to the point where he could hardly do any work. In fact, it was said that, that toward the end, he was only able to do about one hour's work, and the rest of the day, he would just sort of sit in a, in a fit of sleep 23 hours a day. Katie and the children came to be by his side, suspecting that this may be the end. They expressed their concern for him. Luther uh, responded to Katie, free me from your worries. I have a caretaker who is better than you and all the angels. He lies in the cradle and rests on a virgin's bosom, and yet nevertheless he sits at the right hand of God, the Almighty Father. Therefore, be at peace. A few days later, on February 16th, a, a friend found a, a note that Luther had scribbled out and fallen asleep, and it was scrawled out on a scrap of paper, probably one of the most well-known quotes of Luther, we are all beggars, this much is true. But imagine this happened, he wrote this after a day of begging God for mercy, of begging God for the release even of death, facing the pain unassisted like we face today. Throughout the next day, Luther was said to have prayed over and over Psalm 31.5, the same prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. He prayed glorifying God for Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus Christ on his deathbed laying there that last day, he says, Jesus Christ is the one whom I have believed, whom I have loved, whom I have preached, confessed, and praised, whom the Pope and all the godless revile and blaspheme. That day he prayed Luke 2, 29, Lord, let your servant now depart in peace. And late in that evening on the 17th of February, 1546, a friend came and Luther was just almost, almost with the Lord, but still stirring. He said, Luther, are you ready to die professing? Christ and all the doctrine that you have taught? Luther simply said yes and fell asleep. A few hours later, early on the 18th of February, 1546, Luther was ushered into the presence of our glorious God. And he lived, and he lives now even today, what he lived on earth, a life given for God's glory alone. The pinnacle expression of a human to live for God's glory is to respond to the gospel. You, you cannot live for God's glory unless you first respond to the gospel, understanding, believing, and obeying the gospel. Then, out of gratitude, you now have the wherewithal. The Holy Spirit is in you, and He indwells you and, and gives you the wherewithal to actually glorify God, not with empty works motivated by something else, but good works, true works that are motivated by the Holy Spirit that truly bring glory to God. Out of gratitude, you can live your life. If you have repented, you can live your life, your whole life, 
from now on into eternity, glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Let's pray that we would do just that. Father, we thank You so much for the truth of these words. We pray that we would, like Paul, like Luther, like so many other saints who have gone before, we would first respond to the gospel, understand that Christ has given His life for us. He lived the perfect life, a life that we could never produce so that we would have a righteousness that would cover us, and He died an atoning death, again, a death that we could never, a penalty we could never pay in a million eternities. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we could glorify You. So, Lord, I pray for those who have not done that, they would look to Christ and be saved today. For all of us, though, Lord, I pray that we would look at our lives, we would analyze our lives minute by minute, day by day, we would wake up each morning with a renewed desire to glorify You. Lord, I know that there are people in this very room who are going through, through tragic difficulties, through deep hardships. Others may even find themselves in deep hardship because of their own sin. And Lord, I pray that You would bring to them great mercy, great peace. You would give them a desire to glorify You above all else. Lord, all of us, we commit to You a desire. And Lord, the action that is required to glorify You. Help us live this way. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now go from here with the gospel of God's grace on your hearts and minds and lips. And live life with the desire and determination to do all that you can do to the glory of God alone.